As we move into uh, our message this morning, I want to ask you to go ahead and turn uh, in your Bible to Psalm chapter 110. Psalm chapter 110. And as you're turning there, I'm going to kind of set a little bit of a scene for you uh, that's going to give us, I don't know if a little bit of a futuristic backdrop. I don't know if that's right uh, or not, but kind of a look into Psalm 110 before we actually read it. And I'm going to take a look at Matthew chapter 21, just a couple verses. You can turn there if you'd like. If you don't want to, that's fine as well. But basically, in your mind, picture this. This is the time just as the triumphal entry is happening. You know, Jesus is entering in Jerusalem. He's on the back of a donkey. They've got the palm leaves out. Uh, they're shouting Hosanna, you know, and they're laying that down. Basically, in our time, this is when we s celebrate Palm Sunday, you know, the Sunday before Resurrection Easter Sunday. And there, is, there are these chants that are taking place, and it would have been really, really familiar to any religious leader or anyone familiar with uh, the, the Jewish faith, if they were of, of a Hebrew background, they would have recognized what was being declared and what was being said, that these people were basically celebrating the fact that the Messiah has come. So this has kind of got the religious leaders who are already, they kind of have this tension-filled relationship with Jesus to begin with. You know, they're all, they've already been trying to catch him up in a lot of different things, trying to get him to stumble and trying to get something that they can accuse him of and, and hold him liable for, but they just can't. So now it's taken this already tentious relationship and it's kind of ratcheted up, ratcheted it, ratcheted it, ratcheted it up already even higher than what it already was. So here's what we have in Matthew chapter 21. I'm going to read verses 9 through 11. It says, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Now remember that part, okay? Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of, Gal Nazareth of Galilee. Now, we're going to go back to Psalm 110. And before I read this, I just kind of want to give you um, just a little bit of a look into my week and my, as I, we were kind of planning these messages out, I did not, repeat, did not want to preach on Psalm 110. Okay? During my planning, during the prayer for this, I felt Psalm 110, and I was like, no, no, I really don't want to do that. You're going to see why here in a minute. But this is a difficult psalm. And by the way, I, uh, if I'm truly uh, being honest, I've never won an argument with God. It's just never happened. I don't see it happening in the future either. If you have, and you've won, and, and you've got the secret and the formula for that, uh, then good on you because I've not been able to figure it out. But as I was having this uh, conversation, we'll call it with God, I just I kept noticing things about Psalm 110 and how that I come across the fact that Psalm 110 is mentioned more in the New Testament than any other psalm. In particular, verses 1 and verses 4. Mentioned more than any other psalm. Uh, Martin Luther uh, the, probably the most uh, famous reformer who tacked his 95 thesis on the Wittenberg Chapel door in uh, 1517 said this about Psalm 110. He said, it is the very core of the Bible. 
He said that there is no other psalm that more completely, more accurately, or more prophetically gives us a picture of Jesus Christ than what Psalm 110 does. Like I said, it's mentioned all throughout the New Testament. All four Gospels quote Psalm 110. The book of 1 Corinthians, the book of Romans, the book of Ephesians, and the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, they all refer back to Psalm 110. So keep in mind, this is not an easy, comfortable psalm, and you're going to see why as we read it now. Psalm 110, starting with verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the days of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Let's pray this morning. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for time that we can be together and learn from your word, even at times uh, when, when we may have hesitation in certain passages or chapters. God, right now this morning, I ask that you open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits to receive uh, the challenge, the conviction, and the comfort that comes from your word. God, I pray for, for me now that you would use my voice, allow my voice uh, to give audible expressions of your, of your thoughts and your word. God, I pray right now that I would only say what needs to be said, what you inspire, and not say anything that doesn't need to be said that's of me. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, can you see a little bit as to why I was having a little bit of a hesitation and argument? I mean, look at that. We'll come back to these, but you know, you're going to execute kings in the day of your wrath. You're going to judge the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. It kind of sounds like a summer motion movie, major movie, coming to a theater near you. You know, I mean, it's just, I was a little bit hesitant with this, but then I got to looking at what is the message of Psalm 10. When you get past all of that, when you look down to really what is David, who is the one who wrote this psalm, what is he trying to tell us? And as we've been doing the one word theme throughout our summer in the Psalms, Psalm 110 is going to be themed by this word, hope. Psalm 10, 110 is hope. And it's hope in three different things. It highlights three different areas of hope in this passage, two of which are misplaced things that we hope in. Number one, it will show us that people and Israel at the time of David, Israel at the time of Jesus, and people now place their hope in a religious ruler. 
And that's misplaced. And whenever you do this, then you have this mindset that, oh, if we could just get this person elected, or if we could just get this party in power, or if we could just have this king or this person in this position, if we could just make this person to be into this place, then that would solve what's going on in our world. Guys, when we have this type of mentality, when our hope is like that, then what we're saying is, is we have such a low view of the darkness and the brokenness of this world that there is going to be a human that's going to be able to fix it. That's misplaced hope. And what we'll see is that, like I said, not only did Israel suffer from this in the time of David, but they suffered from this in the time of Jesus. And I don't think it's a really difficult stretch for us to make to look around and see that the church is still struggling with this. What this does is it devalues, it takes away the weight and the gravity of the brokenness of the world and the darkness that's in the world. Basically what we're saying is it's not that broken where it's really not that dark. The problems aren't really that big because if we could just get this one person into a political office, if we could just get this one person into a place of political authority, if we could just get this one party that had the control over everything, then the problems of the world would be fixed. Guys, can I tell you that is a misplaced hope because there is no one person that's here on this earth that can fix the problems that we face in this world because this is a broken, dark, sin-filled world. And if it could have been fixed by a person, it would have been fixed before Jesus Christ came. The second place that we see in this passage that there is misplaced hope is in a religious system. Now, everybody pull your toes up just a little bit because I'm having to pull mine up too. Basically, what this belief system says is that if we could just get the right religious system in place, if we could just have the right religious traditions, if we could only just do these particular things over and over and over and over again, then that will fix what's going on. You see, Israel suffered from this too, both in the time of David and in the time of Jesus. And guess what? We suffer with it now as well. If we could only just do this, if we could only just have this religious system in place, if we could only just have this religious tradition in place, if we could only do these things, then it would, it would fix it. Things would be solved. You see, whenever we have this view, then we have a low view and we underestimate the brokenness, the darkness, and the sin that resides in our own hearts. You see, a political ruler, a hope in them, that gives us, a, we have a, a low view, if that's where your hope is, you have a low view of how broken this world is. If you look to a religious system or a religious tradition as your source of hope, then you have a low view of of the brokenness, the darkness, and the sin in your own heart. Basically, what you're saying is that if your hope is in a religious system, you're saying that as long as we can do these certain things and we can do them within our own power, then I can make my standing right with God. If you can give me these things to do, or these words to say, or these songs to sing, or this format to go, go through, then, then we would be 
right with God. So basically we're saying that if we believe and our hope is completely in a religious system, then we're saying that my works can get me into right standing with God. And since we're talking, since I already mentioned Martin Luther, that was the whole purpose of the 95 Thesis that he tacked back in 1517 was salvation by grace, not by works. But then there's a third hope in this passage that we'll look at also, and it's a hope in Jesus Christ. Now, J.T. English, he's a pastor in Texas, he, he, I ran across this quote of his this past week. He says that the greatest tragedy in our lives is when we sacrifice the great thing in pursuit of the good things. So let's look at a couple good things here, okay? Because we're looking at three things, two of which are misplaced, one of which is right, two of which can be good things, but only one is great. So let's look at this political ruler. Let's look at the hope that Israel had in a political ruler. And just, you can put this in your notes. We're not going to turn there. I'm just going to give you a little bit of a description. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this, it kind of records a conversation that David is having with God. Again, David's kind of taking my, uh, you know, posture this week of trying to convince God that he was right. You know, David was right and God was wrong. Basically, David has this realization in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God, here I am living in this palace and your presence is living in a tent. We need to do something about this. We need to make this right. This is not the way it should be. And then God says, don't worry about it. You're not meant to build this for me. Yes, there needs to be a temple for my presence, but you're not going to build it for me. There's going to be one who comes that's going to restore all things, and it's going to be a son of yours. So there, we have seen in both Matthew 21... And in Psalm 110, this phrasing, the son of David. Right? Remember me telling you all to remember that? The son of David. This, in the second Samuel, is kind of where all of the religious leaders' mindsets would have gone back to whenever they heard this term, son of David, because he promises that not only is a temple going to be built by your son, but a nation is going to be restored by one of your sons, which just kind of answers that whole, the, the very first question I had out of Psalm 110 is uh, David saying, the Lord said to my Lord, what? The Lord said to my Lord, you know, because if you, we would go back and we would look at how kingdoms and monarchies and rulers went back then, it was by kings. And then that went generationally. It was the king. And then the successor was the firstborn son of them. And then so on and so forth. So it went through a bloodline, and through the firstborn male of each of these kings. So I don't see David looking at his son saying, my Lord. How many of you who have kids have ever referred to them going, my Lord? I mean, sometimes it feels that way, right? I mean, the kids is, what can I do for you today, my liege, you know? Can we edit that out? I didn't mean to do, okay, no, it's out there forever. Okay, never mind. But you see, it, it's understandable, in my mind at least, that the religious leaders of Jesus' day would have been looking for an actual ruler to set upon the throne. Because the son of David, right? Out of the lineage of David. And that's what was promised all throughout the Old Testament. So it makes sense that they would look and that they would hope towards a right ruler, a political ruler being in place 
But can I tell you the danger of that? And we're guilty of it too. So many times we look for the promises of God that we miss God himself. We look so closely and so passionately for what God has promised that he was going to do for us that we miss God's presence himself. We miss God looking for his blessings. We miss his presence looking for the things that he has spoken that he said he was going to do. When the greatest blessing of all is that we have God in our lives, period. Him coming dying for you is far more of a blessing than you ever deserved. Amen? He could have never done anything else for me for the rest of my life, and he has already done far above and beyond more than what I deserve. But yet he does. But we get so caught up in wanting to see the promises come to pass, to see the blessings come to pass, that I believe, firmly believe, that even us here at First Church, that there have been times that we have missed God's presence because we've been more focused on his promises than looking for him. And that needs to change in our hearts. And that's what we see happened in the, uh, you know, in the early church. Not the early church, but in Jesus' life. Let's, uh, I want to turn to Matthew 22. Because Jesus, uh, he kind of addresses this here. Because again, they're, they're looking for someone to come and sit upon the throne. Matthew 22, I'm going to be reading verses 41 through 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. That's Psalm 110.1 that Jesus was quoting right there. Verse 45, Jesus continues and says, If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? See, it's going back to the why would he call his actual son his Lord? It's not talking about a physical lineage. He's talking about, or he's not talking about someone to come and sit on a physical throne. He's calling He's talking about someone who's called to come and, and be a spiritual sacrifice, be a spiritual king and lord for us. And I, I love chapter four, or verse 46 because this is where I find myself most of the time. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. <laughs> All right, I'm shutting up. I ain't got nothing else to say. Anybody? Anybody? No. Okay, we're good. Thanks. So here's that, that's this look at this, if you're looking for a political ruler or a political party, it's not someone who's going to be sitting upon a throne. Now hear me clearly, in, in what is turning out to be, on, what I can only equate as to being the year of scorched earth in 2020, I'm not for certain if any of you all know this or not. You may have seen it on social media. I don't know. You may have seen it on the news. It's actually, actually an election year. Did you all know that? You may have learned something right there. It's an election year. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying do not be involved in the election. Do not be involved in politics. Be involved. Pay attention. Please vote. Do that. You can be involved, but please don't allow your hope in a political party or a political figure to outweigh and surpass the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you this, a couple challenging questions. 
what do most of your conversations consist of? Do you talk about more about a political party? Or do you talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you talk about a candidate more than you talk about the hope that is in Jesus Christ? On your social media pages, go back and reflect on them. Do you see more posts being about politics and current events than what you do about the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ? It's kind of quiet in here. But go back and review it, because that will tell you a lot. Your conversations, what you talk about, what you focus on, what comes out of your mouth, and number two, what you post about, what you engage in on social media, what people see, that will reveal to you a really, and give you a really good indication of where your hope really lies. Again, it's not bad. I'm not discouraging you from being political. Be involved. Do your thing. But do not allow that to surpass your your passion and your love and your hope for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's look at the second place of hope. And this is in a religious system. So in Psalm 110, verse 4, you see that the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So here's what we have. is We've kind of got this mention of this priest in this passage. And this is only like one of the very, very few times that this priest, Melchizedek, is mentioned in the Old Testament. But yet he's talked about in the New Testament, and he's, he's got a great amount of weight in the New Testament. And real quickly, I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 14, and we are going to look at this account of Melchizedek and where he is mentioned the only time other than Psalm 110. So Genesis 14, we're going to be reading verses 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So here's this priest, Melchizedek, talking to Abram, Abraham, the father of faith, the patriarch of faith, right? And somehow, and we'll see here in just a minute that um, nobody really knew where Melchizedek come from. Uh, nobody knew where he went. He was kind of like the Old Testament Genesis version of Cotton Eye Joe. You know, where did you come from? Where did you go? Never mind. Anyhow, anyhow, that, that was bad. That was bad. It was bad, Ben. It's bad. But here he is having this this relate this this conversation with Abram, and Abram, the father of faith, decides that this guy's the real deal, and he's giving him a tenth of what he has. So we're looking at this religious system. Again, remember that a religious system devalues the level of sin and darkness in our own lives and our own hearts. And it basically gives us the message that if we can do the right things, we can have the right traditions, we can go through the right systems, then we can be made right with God through those. So turn to Hebrews. I know we're going a whole lot of different places here, but Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews 
Have you ever had one of those books in the Bible that hide from you? You know, it's like you know exactly where they should be, but you can never find them. Yeah, Hebrews is that book for me, so I have to mark it every time I plan on going there unless I'm going, no, nope, no, nope, back here, okay. So now I'm going to kind of be bouncing around in chapter 7 a little bit. First, I'm going to be reading the first four verses. Verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated, Melchizedek, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and he was king over Salem, which means peace. He's the king of righteousness who rules over peace. Isn't that an interesting little side note there? Verse number three, pay attention to this. Talking about Melchizedek. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? I want to pause here really quickly. There was a priestly line that interceded for the people in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. They went in, they took care of the Day of Atonement, they took care of the festivals, all of the traditions, all of the rituals. They had priests that would serve as an advocate as an intercessor for the people and for their sin. So that's what he's referring to here. And they came from a genealogy also, Levi and Aaron. Okay, So it, just like with the monarch, the priest came through a genealogy as well. It came through a bloodline. And that's what he's talking about there. Hey, listen, if this, if this law would cover all of this, if this priesthood would cover all of this, then why would we need anything else other than the Levitical law? And then we find this Melchizedek coming up and just popping out of nowhere. Just says, no father, no mother. He just was. Okay, so go down to verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. He came from a line where it wasn't, the priesthood wasn't supposed to come from. And it was yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of the flesh commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110, verse 4, that they're quoting there. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of his weakness and his unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Now, I know that's a lot of information. That was a lot of scripture. Basically, that's, let me boil it down for you. That's basically just saying that the law in and of itself, the Levitical priesthood, the ones that came from Aaron and Levi, cannot make anything perfect, cannot redeem anyone, cannot forgive anyone, cannot put anyone in right standing. So basically, any legalistic tradition, any religious system, any religious tradition cannot in and of itself make you right with God. Now listen. We all have our preferences. We all have our preferences to music, the way things are done, the version of the Bible we read, the way that we conduct service. We all have them, myself included. And it's not wrong to have that 
It is wrong when you elevate it beyond a relationship with Christ. Just like the political system, if you elevate that to where it surpasses your relationship with God, it's wrong. If a religious system or a religious tradition, you put more value in that and more faith in that and more hope in that than what you do Jesus Christ, you're wrong. If the law could have made anyone perfect, it wouldn't have been necessary for Jesus to come. So let's look at this hope that, well, let me, before we move on to the hope in Christ. So we've talked about a, a political belief and a political ruler, and we've talked about a religious system. You know, I find it interesting that Jesus' death can be attributed to one one sect of the society, and that was the religious people. It wasn't sin. It wasn't, the, the, it wasn't a demonic spirit. It wasn't spirit of rebellion. It wasn't any of those things that put Jesus onto the cross. It was the religious spirit. It was the spirit of a religious system that was threatened by Jesus' presence. And the political spirit, the political form of the day, allowed that to happen when Pilate washed his hands and said, it's not on me, do what you want to. Isn't it interesting, the ones, the very ones that are, that are responsible for Jesus' death is a political and a religious system, but yet we look in Psalm 110, long before Jesus came, and said, false hope is in a religious system or in a political system. But the true hope that you need is in Jesus Christ. And this has pointed us all over the New Testament for this. And like I said, I, I encourage you, uh, look for in, in, the, in the Gospels, in 1 Corinthians 15, in Romans, in Ephesians, and then this section in Hebrews. Look at the references to Psalm 110 in those books in the New Testament. Now, let's get back to the difficult part, Psalm 110, because I believe verses 5 and 6 give us an indication of the consequences of not having your complete hope and trust be in Jesus Christ. This is the end result if you hope in the two other things completely. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the days of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. And then verse 7 says, He shall drink of the brook by the wayside, therefore he shall lift up the head. Folks, one of the most dangerous things that we can face as a church is if we have a domesticated view of Jesus Christ. If Jesus fits into our definition, that's the most dangerous thing that the church faces today. You see, because we, we like Jesus being our spiritual fixer of things. If we have a spiritual need, we, we like that Jesus. We like that version of Jesus. But now, wait a minute, Jesus. We've, uh, we've got this, this, these cultural problems. Um, so we're just going to entrust that the political figures are going to take care of that. That's a domesticated view of Jesus if you look at him as a fixer of spiritual issues, but not of cultural issues. And then if we take this look of saying, well, Jesus, we know that you can forgive us of our sins initially, but I'll tell you what, once that's done, we'll just depend on ourselves and our works and our, our religious systems and our religious traditions, and we'll work it out from here. See, that's a domesticated view of Jesus Christ, and that is the most dangerous thing the church faces today. 
So we see in verses 5 and 6, I, I really didn't want to preach on this this morning. I really didn't. But that's the consequences of not hoping in Jesus Christ. Because when we see this picture of God that's in verses 5 and 6, that's not the picture of God that we want. That's not the picture of God that we like. That's not the God that we prefer. Legan Duncan says it this way, that there is a God that is and that there is a God who we want, and the two are not the same. There's a God who is and a God that we want or that we prefer, and the two are not the same. Again, let's remember what every passage in the book of Psalms has taught us. He is God. I am not. He is God. You are not. I'm going to ask the praise team if they would to, to come back up. The good news is that if you don't know Jesus, if you never turned your life over to Jesus, his good news is not destruction. His good news is life everlasting with him. It's forgiveness of sin. It's life and life to the full. And even if you're here and you've been a Christian and you've known Jesus for a long time, but yet you found yourself slipping into leaning and hoping more in a religious system or leaning and hoping more into a political ruler, guess what the good news is, is he's still a restoring God. And even if you have misplaced your hope, he's here with open arms to receive you this morning.